God's holy word to Jeremiah chapter 38. Jeremiah 38. Now Shephatiah the son of Matan, Gedaliah the son of Pasher, Jugal the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says Yahweh, Who who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says Yahweh, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the officials said to the king, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, Behold, he's in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. When Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Take thirty men with you from here, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, and went to the house of the king, to a wardrobe in the storehouse, and took from there old rags and worn-out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of Yahweh. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, As Yahweh lives, who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says Yahweh, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and the city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them, and they deal cruelly with me. Jeremiah said, You will not be given to them. Obey now the voice of Yahweh in what I say to you, and it will be well with you, and your life shall be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which Yahweh has shown to me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of of Babylon and were saying, Your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, and you yourself, you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. If the officials hear that I have spoken with you, and come to you and say to you, Tell us what you said to the king, and what the king said to you. Hide nothing from us and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him, 
And he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been overheard. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, bless the preaching of your word concerning the word itself. Give us tender hearts by your word towards your word. Father, not out of Self-interest demonstrated in a show of strength or self-preservation in a show of weakness, but in faith and obedience that you are the speaking God and you've spoken your word. May we step forward in what we do, be constrained in what we do be compelled from outside of ourselves in what we do for Your glory and Your name. In the name of Christ we ask these things. Amen. Andrew Sheed has written a scholarly work titled Words from the Fire in which he argues that the book of Jeremiah functions as a kind of narrative about the Word of God. That it presents a biblical theology of the Word of God. Now, I'm not asking you to buy into the whole of his thesis, and it's much more involved than that. But 37 chapters into Jeremiah, I hope you can see the legitimacy of how he would be led to craft such a a thesis, especially in light of these, these later chapters whenever it becomes clear that you're you're not being told so much what the message of Jeremiah was, as you're being told how that message was received. So just consider Sheed's analysis of the word formulas that are found in Jeremiah. First you have what is called the messenger formula. Thus says Yahweh, which you encounter 155 times. In Jeremiah. That's more than the rest of the Old Testament combined. That phrase is replete throughout the prophets, especially. We see it again and again, but Jeremiah is just saturated with it. The narrative formula, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah saying, is used 23 times in the book. And while Ezekiel does use it twice as often, it's almost exclusively used by those two prophets. There is what Sheed argues the most important of these, the word event formula, the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. And and what he argues and makes a case for is that those serve as kind of major headings that mark the, the major units of Jeremiah, and they bind Jeremiah together then as being this narrative about the word of Yahweh. And then also, you have that phrase, declares Yahweh, thus declares Yahweh, used 167 times in Jeremiah, which accounts for 60% of the usage of the entire Bible, declares Yahweh. I bring this out just to make plain that especially in this chapter, many of these later chapters, but especially this chapter, that you can see the main message isn't the one Jeremiah delivers. But it's a message about how that delivered message is received. So Jeremiah's message here is is just as, as it were a prop within this story we have before us to tell us a message concerning God's words and how they're received, disbelieved, or believed. The aftermath 
that results from belief and disbelief. In the first section of our text, verses 1 through 6, Jeremiah ends up in a cistern. How did he get there? There are two answers. First, his message so angered the officials that they put him there. Who are these officials? The first two, Shephatiah, Gedaliah, we don't hear of anywhere else. This is as much as we know of them. The second set were sent to Jeremiah before, whenever he was free. Jukal here is the Jehukal of the previous chapter, 37 and verse 3. Pasher was sent in chapter 21 and verse 1. Now, when were they sent? The scarcity of food, as we'll see it spoken of in this chapter, I believe makes it clear that this happens after the events of chapter 37, where we see Jeremiah is put into a dungeon or a cistern at Shephatiah's, at the secretary's house, and Jonathan, the secretary's house. And he's delivered from there, put in the court of guard, and chapter 37 ends telling us that he was given a loaf of bread daily from the Baker Street until all the bread of the city was gone. So this also tells you where Jeremiah is when he's preaching this message. He's still confined to the court of the guard. And if you remember in chapter 32, while he was confined to the court of the guard, he still had a great degree of freedom. It was there that he conducted business to redeem the piece of land that Hanamel, his cousin, was asking that he redeem. So he's still able to interact with others while he's doing this, while people are passing through the court of the guard. He's using that liberty to continue preaching the word of God. Word of God. And, and while there, he preaches this particular message, and what is it about the, about the message that so infuriates them? It's just a typical three-point sermon. One, stay and die. Two, leave and live. Three, the grounds for this, Yahweh is giving the city into the hand of the, Bab- the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. That's it. Those are his three points. And this is the very same message that Jeremiah preached in chapter 21. Whenever Zedekiah inquired by the same pasture of him, Jeremiah is free. And whenever Jeremiah responds, he also is told by Yahweh to respond with a word that's for the people in general. Chapter 21, 8 through 10. To this people you shall say, thus says Yahweh, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who strays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares Yahweh. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. Note this. Very often, there's no radical actions that follow that instance. No persecution. Sometimes it isn't so much what you say as when you say it. It's not so much what you say as when you say it. In Proverbs 25.11, we're told that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. But sometimes a word fitly spoken is like a stick of dynamite well set. That... what. A word fitly spoken doesn't always mean it falls pleasantly. Sometimes the fitly spoken word is like the stick of dynamite placed strategically. Jeremiah's message was tolerated, overlooked, ridiculed, mocked largely. Those were the responses. So long as the people were easily swayed by a false message of peace. That's hard to buy now. This far into the siege, no food. Water, as we'll see soon, likely getting very scarce as well. They're not so believable anymore. And Jeremiah is. You can understand this kind of response, I hope, more now than perhaps ever in in many of our lifetimes. You can believe some wacky stuff. And you're free to... Tell it. You're free to share it. We, we live in a nation as a fundamental right. We have the freedom of speech. And, and so long as it doesn't disturb those who are in power, 
So much as everyone looks at that, you're not believable, you're just laughable. So long as that's the scenario, so long as it's you who looks like a fool, speak on. But as soon as the tables seem like they might turn, as soon as it seems like you might have some credibility, as soon as it, it seems like uh, they might believe you, well, uh, then it gets more serious. So sometimes whenever you preach the word, you'll be laughed at, you'll be ridiculed, you'll be mocked. Sometimes you could be killed, threatened. There was a time whenever you could talk about viral infections and masks in a civil manner. <laughs> there was that time. Not so anymore. You see? That's become a serious thing. In Acts chapter 17, after Paul preached at the synagogue uh, in Thessalonica, there were some jealous Jews. And because some of those that he preached to had believed. And so we're told they're jealous. And so they seek out someone. And they're only able to find Jason who had hosted them. And they bring Jason before the authorities saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king Jesus, Acts 17, 6 through 7. Just like the Pharisees. And remember, this is the people who defied Rome. The Jews defied Rome. Rome demanded, listen, you can worship whatever God you want, but you've got to worship the emperor as well. They defied Rome saying, Yahweh, Yahweh alone is God and worthy of worship. And just like the Pharisees did with Jesus, whenever, whenever it gets serious enough, they're ready to say, we have no king but Caesar. They're ready to change their message to silence another message that they view as a threat. Why? Jealousy. It isn't just that they want Jeremiah silenced, mind you. They want him dead. Permanently silenced, verse 4. And the reason is, they say, one, he's weakening the hands of the soldiers of the people by his words, he is, too, not seeking, they say, the welfare of the city, but their harm. Jeremiah, here's the spin they put on it, Jeremiah is being persecuted by the cult of positivity. Yes, those smiley Joel Osteen prophets of peace will seek your head if you're threatening enough. Listen to Joel Osteen and the, the Prophets of Positivity today and see how often, just whenever it's, whenever it's on that lighter level, see how often it is that they talk about silencing those negative voices, paying no attention to them, and the way our culture apes that, and then how it gets ratcheted up whenever that kind of mindset gets wed to political power. If you are encouraging people in their dreams, you're harming them. You're harmful. This world would rather hear negative lies than positive... Uh, they'd rather hear positive lies than negative truths. Tell them a happy lie more than, a, than the sad truth, and they'll love you. This is why if you tell Timmy that he can't be Sally, they'll kill you. They'll seek to kill you, silence you. This world is building a tower of Babel to the heavens, and if you laugh at it, if you ridicule it, if you mock it, they'll either ridicule, mock you, laugh at you, or if enough people take you seriously, they'll mortar the bricks with your blood. Positive and negative, we need to remember this, are not akin to the biblical categories of righteousness and evil, good and evil. It is good to be positive about righteousness and negative about sin. And taking this world as a system, we are downright, thoroughly negative about it. Down in flames like Jerusalem in her rebellion. That's where she's headed. Being down on sin is a major upper. And being up on sin is a major downer. This is not a t-ball game. 
The world doesn't need encouragement. She doesn't need a pep talk. Yeah, this world is peewee league, but she's taking on the pros. And it's not just the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are simply the bat in God's all-powerful hands, the mighty arm of Yahweh. This world wants prophets who will tell her that sin will be successful, that her sin will be successful. But you cannot be optimistic about taking on the omnipotent. There's no hope. Don't believe in yourself. That's our message. Don't. Don't believe in yourself. Believe in Yahweh. Repent and bow to Christ as Lord. That message doesn't weaken hands. Your hands are weak. They are weak. And it's any lie, it's any delusion otherwise that's really harmful. Because then you're going to play a game, and it's not a game. Then you're going to try to play a game. you got absolutely no hope of winning. The only thing God's truth harms is your pride and your flesh. The gospel does, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, bid one come and die, but it bids you come and die that you might live. Yes, it'll kill you. It'll kill what's killing you. It will kill the dead man and raise you up, a new creation in Christ. Now, back to that original question. Why is Jeremiah in a cistern? We've seen one answer, that he infuriates these officials. The second answer is, because the king is weak, verse 5. Why is Jeremiah in the cistern? Because the king is weak. Why is Zedekiah so mousy, so weak, so pathetic? I think the only answer that we, only indication at all, I don't really want to say it's an answer, the only clue or hint we get is whenever Hananiah, that false prophet, preaches in chapter 28, he says, uh, Babylon's going to fall in two years, and Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, Coniah, whatever name you want to call him by, will return with the exiles. What? <laughs> now, the false prophet's gig is all about self, really. And so if he's all about, if Hananiah is all about himself, what would make him take on the king? Well, it's probably recognizing the king, he's not really in charge here. The people probably largely still regard Jehoiachin as the legitimate ruler. Zedekiah here tries like Pilate to wash his hands of the prophet's blood. I can't do anything. Do with him as you wish. But by trying to dodge responsibility, he only exercises responsibility weakly and wickedly. Whenever you're responsible, you cannot become non-responsible by trying by irresponsibility. You can be irresponsible with a responsibility that's yours, but you cannot be a-responsible. You cannot be non-responsible. So like Adam, Zedekiah was entrusted with a domain. It's his, he's responsible. And acting weakly trying to shirk it, slough it off, doesn't escape any responsibility. It's just that now you're responsible for sin. The great sin of men, from Adam to Zedekiah, from A to Z, is doing nothing. Not acting responsibly in righteousness. It's for these two reasons, the wickedness of the officials and the weakness of the king, that Jeremiah is confined to this cistern. But, it's for the officials, they do it gently. How humane. They don't just toss him in, they lower him into the pit. They want Jeremiah dead but they don't want blood on their hands. They don't even want injury on their hands. Just let him slowly die in the cistern. And the absence of water in the cistern speaks to 
We've seen drought being one of the threats promised against the nation again and again. It speaks not just to the absence of food, consuming more water, you might say. It speaks to the drought that they've experienced. And how desperate Jeremiah's plight is at this point can be seen in this. How often is one of the most vivid and common metaphors for being at the lowest point throughout the Psalms, being in the pit, sinking in the miry clay. And for Jeremiah, it's no metaphor at all for being in the lowest place. He is in the lowest place. Think how unsanitary. Think think of the air that he's breathing. Think how unsafe, how putrid, how wretched this cistern is. The next section in verses 7 through 13 end with Jeremiah being delivered from the cistern. How is he rescued? In the most unexpected of ways. It's a bit like being told that there is a powerful ring of evil and then having your attention directed to a plump middle-aged hobbit. Ebed-Melech is a Cushite. That's the more strict translation for what you have as Ethiopian here. He's a Cushite. He's a eunuch. He's a servant of the king. Perhaps he's over the king's harem. And Ebed-Melech, after hearing of Jeremiah's plight, immediately acts, goes to the king who's at the Benjamin gate, which is a peculiar detail to include here. Why add that, that little detail? Well, being at the gate, you would regularly think that the king is acting in judgment. And so it should evoke that idea. That, that would be the most common idea when you see an official or a king at a gate is that he's there acting in judgment, acting officially. The, the gates were the place of judgment. But since the city's under siege, it's most likely in reference to something dealing with Babylon that he's there for. But nonetheless, it should bring into your mind the king's at the place of judgment. And then you remember whenever Jeremiah was first seized in chapter 37, accused of desertion to the Chaldeans. Where was he seized before he was brought to the officials so that he was cast into the cistern? At the Benjamin gate. Ebed-Melech, please that these men have acted wickedly. Now it's the officials who are being accused to the king. And so once again, you see, we talked about this last week, what should the king do? He should act in righteousness and judgment. But instead again, he acts covertly and cunningly. Ebed-Melech, please, that these men have acted wickedly. Jeremiah will soon die of hunger. There's no bread left in the city, verse 9. And, and some people will kind of ridicule Ebed-Melech or question the word of God here. He's in a cistern and there's no food in the city. So what good does delivering him from the cistern do concerning this? But here's the thing. It's a dog-eat-dog kind of world now in Jerusalem. Every man for himself. You have to scrounge for anything to survive. And if that's the atmosphere in the city, no one's going to be concerned to go by and check on the prophet in the pit you got to get him out of there, or there's, no one's going to care for him. So get him out where he can care for himself. The king commands Ebed-Melech to take with him 30 men and left Jeremiah out of the pit. And Jeremiah is not that big of a guy. 30 men seems a bit excessive, unless you're expecting trouble. They go and... Ebed-Melech does so, and he demonstrates as much foresight as he does concern for Jeremiah. He gets these clothes and these rags. You can imagine Jeremiah's fragile state. And so, to prevent further injury, they have these clothes to cushion the ropes as they lift him out. While the officials want to kill Jeremiah, and Zedekiah is only concerned for his own skin, this Gentile shows concern and compassion 
for God's prophet. And as you read this, I wonder how many of you couldn't help but think of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, who is also a royal servant, not of any king in Jerusalem, but of Candace, uh, queen of Ethiopian, uh, the Ethiopians. And he's reading that book of Isaiah, returning from Jerusalem, encounters Philip who explains to him, this concerns Christ. And he believes, and he's baptized. And all that happens in reference to the Christ who pronounced judgment on the city, saying it would be destroyed, not one stone left on top of another, with the hardness of those people rejecting Christ. And here is an Ethiopian eunuch who believes. Sometime after this, Zedekiah sent for and received Jeremiah at the third entrance of the temple, verse 14. Now, Jeremiah is confined to the court of the guard, which is on the palace precincts, and the king sends for Jeremiah to meet him at the third entrance of the temple. What's going on? It's like calling for a meeting with one of your children that lives in your house at the neighbor's. Why? It's clear. Verse 16, Zedekiah swears secretly to Jeremiah. Verse 24, Zedekiah says, don't let anyone know about this conversation. Verse 28, we're told things don't proceed any further with Jeremiah because no one overheard his conversation with the king. Zedekiah is afraid of being spied on within his own palace. That really is illuminating concerning the situation in Jerusalem. This is the fourth and final interview that Zedekiah has with Jeremiah. Jeremiah has with Zedekiah. And the question is essentially the same. You don't ever really get the question. He says, I'm going to ask you a question. And you never get a forthright question after that in this chapter. Because the question is understood, it's known. It's the same question Zedekiah has asked the previous three times. Chapter 21, 1-7 tells you what he's thinking. The word that came from Yahweh when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Maaseah, saying, Inquire of Yahweh for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps... Yahweh will deal with us according to all His wonderful deeds and will make Him withdraw from us. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of the city I myself will fight against you with an outstretched arm, hand, and a strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Afterwards, declares Yahweh, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants, and the people in the city who survived the pestilence, sword, and famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. In chapter 37, 3 through 10, Babylon withdraws, you remember, to deal with Egypt. And we see Zedekiah send for Jeremiah. And he puts it this way, inquire of us for Yahweh. No, he says, pray for us, pray for us. And Jeremiah responds to those who were sent to him, go back to the king who sent you to inquire of me. Like this prayer request that you have for me is masking that previous request you made and you're wanting to know if Yahweh just perhaps has had mercy. And thereafter, chapter 
37, verse 17, for no reason, the king inquires again. It's been said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We might say that spiritual insanity is asking the same question of the immutable God again and again and expecting a different answer. And yet, how many of us read our Bible that way? As if it'll say something different this time. As if somehow we can take a text and it will somehow justify our actions. Which we, we really know already what God says concerning them. Balak kept asking the same question over and over. Expecting a different result. And through Balaam, God told him, God is not a man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? We might come to the Bible and change our minds about what it does say, but what it does say never changes. Jeremiah replies, if I answer, you'll kill me, you're not going to listen anyway. Verse 15. The king, you note, makes no promise concerning listening. And when he does make a promise, it's secretly that he won't put Jeremiah to death. Now think about the previous encounter. I'm not going to put him to death. <laughs> you, you deal with him. He does add, I, I won't hand you over to them either. But even so, this is the same king that publicly not secretly, publicly swore fidelity to Nebuchadnezzar in the name of Yahweh, chapter 36, verse 13 of Second Chronicles. In breaking that covenant, Ezekiel 17 makes clear that he broke covenant with Yahweh. So here's Jeremiah. If you broke a, a covenant that you publicly made in Yahweh's name with someone with as much power as Nebuchadnezzar, and here you are making a promise to me in Yahweh's name secretly, what, what good's that kind of promise from such a person? Zedekiah, it's clear here, doesn't intend to keep this promise by courage, but by cunning. Not by courage, but by cunning. It's not that I'm going to use my authority and I'm going to lay my life down, no matter what the cost for me as king, I'm going to use my power and authority to protect you. Rather than that, I, I think I, I can work it out how we can pull this all off. But Zedekiah, you see, is, it's all about him. He's only concerned to get what he wants to get. Jeremiah answers, and what's surprising is that nothing at all changes. The Word of God never changes, but you would be expecting because of Zedekiah's hardness of heart and rebellion that now because of a different scenario with Zedekiah that the Word of God concerning Zedekiah is absolute judgment. And yet, God extends mercy. If Zedekiah will surrender, he'll live. Not only so, his house will live. And not only so, the city will not be burned. You see, it's Jeremiah's message that seeks the welfare of the city. But if Zedekiah does not, the city will be given into their hands, it will be burned, there will be no escape for Zedekiah, verse 18. Zedekiah responds that he's fearful, verse 19, of being given over to those Judeans who've already deserted. I'll be given into their hands. Who was Zedekiah not afraid of? He's afraid of the Chaldeans. He's afraid of his own officials. He's afraid of those who have deserted. And as can be seen, to a degree, in some way, he, by his consistent uh, inquiring of Jeremiah, he, he's afraid of God to some degree. But fearing God alongside or with equal to others is deadly. God is not to be feared with others. He's to be feared above others. He's not to be feared like others. He's to be revered as 
holy, separate, unlike any other. God admonished the prophet Isaiah saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts, Him shall you honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, let Him be your dread. Jerah pronounces, you will not be given over to them. It will be well with you. Verse 20. But if you refuse to surrender, this is what I've seen. The officials will lead the women of the king's house, his concubines. They will lead them out. And those women will mock the king, saying, Your friends, where are they now? that you've sunk in the mud. They've turned away. I think this is a reference to the officials. It could be the idea that the king, uh, that the friends were the Chaldeans, but I don't think there's any, anything to that. I think it's really referring to the officials. It's not Jeremiah then, but Zedekiah, though metaphorically, it's Zedekiah who's really sunk into the pit. But for him, there will be No deliverance. Zedekiah gives no inclination of obeying this word. He only commands Jeremiah, don't let anyone know about this conversation. Verse 24. If the officials acquire, Jeremiah is to reply that he pled for his life, not to be sent back to the house of Jonathan. Verse 26. The officials do, just as Zedekiah thought. Jeremiah responds as instructed, verse 27. The question we have is, did Jeremiah lie in this? One could reason from his plea in verse 15, that, or, or his statement in verse 15, that he's, he's implicitly pleading for his life there, but I don't think that justification is just. I think that's slim. But don't think harshly of Jeremiah. He's a man. We all know we can lie like him. But can we, under such pressures as he was, speak God's truth again and again and again? Anyway, the officials seem to know they've been outmaneuvered on this one. And so they make no further inquiries. Verse 27, Jeremiah remains in the court of the guard until the city falls. Verse 28. So, as far as this being a narrative about the Word of God, notice this. As we look at these officials and their desire to kill Jeremiah, with the Word being fulfilled right in front of them, their hearts do not grow softer, but harder. The word preached is one thing, but the word, as it were, manifest, becoming reality, doesn't doesn't solve anything. It just exacerbates the, the issue of their heart, as it were. As we look at Zedekiah, with the increasing weight and pressures that come upon him and the weakness of this man, it doesn't drive him to humbly fear Yahweh. The Word of God proves illuminating, but not in a way that illuminates from within. It just illuminates the darkness of Zedekiah. Learn this. Just because rain falls doesn't mean there will be water in the cistern. It does not matter if the rain falls over a 40-year ministry of the Word. It does not mean that there will be water in your cistern if you sit under such a ministry. If the rain falls torrentially, heavily, it does not mean there will be water in the cistern. Sometimes, Calamity is used by God to humble the heart. But remember, 
Our hope is not calamity. Our hope is in God. It might not be His will to use a calamity to bring about grace, but purely judgment. Outside circumstances do not make the Word of God more effective. God does. God may use outside circumstances as part of making His Word effective, but it's not the circumstances, it is our God that makes His Word heard. If you slow cook a sinful heart over a long ministry, you slow cook that heart in the Word. If God withholds grace, the only thing you will get on the other side of that crockpot cooking of the heart is a hard heart. Harder, not softer. And if you pressure cook a sinful heart in the Word under judgment, the only thing you will get on the other side of that, if God is not merciful, is a harder, tougher piece of flesh. Not a more tender one. The flesh of sinners' hearts cannot be tenderized by using us using the right recipe or the right method or the right utensils or the right kitchen gizmo. The only thing that can tenderize the sinner's heart is whenever God speaks His Word in mercy directly to the sinner's heart. Sinner, don't think that whenever things get really bad, then all of a sudden you'll get really good. If under the sprinkling of the Word, you harden your heart whenever the rain falls heavy, you will be baked hard as clay and receive nothing. Man must be made new. God must change the heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. As he promised in 32 and verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And where God does that is so often in the most unexpected of places. Ebed Milek an Ethiopian, a eunuch. As he's a Cushite, we see the curse that was involved. Noah put on Ham, put on Cush. As he's a eunuch, being one who could not participate in any way, even if he were a Jew, in the temple worship. Likely overseeing the king's harem. And this, this Gentile demonstrates compassion for the Lord's prophet, which is, could be taken to speak to a tenderness to the Word of God, a humility before God, which the next chapter I think will make clear that this is so. In chapter 39, deliverance is promised to Ebed-Melech. And the reason, he says, is because you... Trust in me. You trust in Yahweh. This is where our trust should be as well. Not in men, but in Yahweh. We need to trust God not just as our salvation, like thinking, my salvation involves trusting Yahweh. No, we need to trust Yahweh for salvation in its totality. As Jonah declares, salvation is of the Lord. Judgment here righteously falls on those who in darkness, hardness, 
blindness, hatred, and rebellion reject the word, though it's been preached to them again and again and again. Though it's becoming a reality and its judgments are falling upon them. Grace, surprisingly, gloriously, in the midst of that, falls where we would least expect it. 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling, brothers. As I look in the mirror and I look around at you, I love you, dear saints. You are, you are my delight, but it doesn't make sense why God would save you, why God would save me. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, and he quotes Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, for any sinner here, the word of your judgment hangs over them. They are a child of wrath, dead in their sins. Father, bring them to the end of themselves. Show them the weakness of their own hands. Their helplessness and despair. The pit that they are sunk down into. And grant them repentance and faith to call out on you. For the glory of your son. And father have mercy on we your children. To again and again remind us. That we are forever. Children. Children of the Lord, gloriously so, but we are children. You are our Father. We are children, we are needy, and we are dependent. We will never grow up in that sense. May we grow into maturity, yes, but never grow up into independency. Grant us humility before you. Fear and reverence of you. Love towards you. Father, may we tremble at your word. And may it be to us as sweet as honey. Our meditation day and night. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.